thank you very much, Rabbi Solis. <clears throat> um, and uh, it's great to have all of you in the house and in the room. Uh, I don't know if Rabbi Shusman mentioned his grandfather was sort of the Rebbe's uh, printer, uh, in addition to being the Torah reader um, in uh, services at uh, 770. So I don't, did your grandfather print, uh, did he print this? No, this, uh, at this point, uh, it was the earlier years that my grandfather printed this farm, then Kahas. Uh -huh. uh, okay. <clears throat> well, first up, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there and to all of you who are the uh, progeny of a father. And in the context of today's discussion, people often mistake the euphemisms that are used to describe God, such as our Father in heaven, for example, as um, just sort of utilizing human language and applying it to God in a very liberal um, sort of way. But the truth is that when we talk about God as our Father, that is the ultimate and truest definition of a father and child relationship. The human version of that is uh, an approximation of it. In other words, what is the dynamic of a relationship between a parent and a child? It is one of unconditional love, an intrinsic and unbreakable bond and connection that is born both of the biological um, connection, but more than that, one of an essential nature. And that's one of the themes that emerges in this discourse. The unbreakable bond between God and the Jewish people and how that manifest, has manifested itself um, historically during challenging times and how that ought to impact the way that we um, continue to see our responsibility towards um, God's agenda, as you will, and marching orders for all of us, and particularly um, at this juncture in history. Um, just a little background to uh, the discourse. Um, I'm just gonna assume that most of you are familiar with, with um, notion of uh, Hasidic discourse. Um, in 1950, his Rebbe, the predecessor of the Rebbe, his father-in-law, passed away on the Hebrew date of the 10th of Shvat. In advance of that, he had prepared a Hasidic discourse um, to be published. As it turns out, um, he shared, ended up sharing the same yard site with his grandmother. And so in advance of his grandmother's yard site, he published a Hasidic discourse. A Hasidic discourse is a mystical treatise or exposition on a theme that is um, stated in the Torah and taken to its um, deepest most spiritual, most mystical, 
but ultimately most practical um, level of understanding and of application. So as, uh, as Providence would have it, the previous Rebbe prepares this discourse for publication based, and all Hasidic discourses are based on biblical text or Talmudic text, which is the launch pad, as it were, for the, for the themes that are covered in, in the, uh, the discourse. And that particular discourse was based on a verse in the Song of Songs in which God is paraphrased as saying, I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. God talks about his return to the garden. The garden is the world. And the discourse talks about a historical pattern of generational leaders, starting with Abraham, the first leader of the Jewish people, and a, a, uh, there's like a cycle of seven generational leaders. In, in, and in the first instance, that cycle started with Abraham and uh, ended with Moses, with Moshe. And Moshe was the seventh generational Jewish leader after Abraham, and he consummated a process that Abraham had undertaken, which was to reclaim God. God had been all but um, abandoned or forgotten by humanity or edged out, as the Medrash tells us, the seven cosmic sins forced um, God out of the world and um, Abraham started the, the, the reversal process of what I call the uh, Shekhinah, Divine Presence Reclamation Project, bringing awareness of the existence of God back to humanity. That awareness was ultimately concretized and manifested uh, in its fullest measure by Moses, who was the agent who brought us the Torah, which is the expressed will and wisdom of God, and the building of the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, which gave an actual physical space for the Shekhinah, for the divine presence to be manifest here in this world. This was the gist of um, the discourse that the previous Rebbe released in advance of his grandmother's Yorzeit, which that year, 1950, turned out to be his very own Yorzeit. Chassidim considered that discourse to be his spiritual uh, will, if you will, or his spiritual marching orders, and as providence would have it. The, the emphasis on leadership the emphasis on a cycle of leadership, particularly this idea of seven generational leaders and this whole pattern of that, as I mentioned in Jewish history, um, could not have been any more prescient and uh, prophetic, if you will, in so much as the previous Rebbe was the sixth generational leader in the dynasty of Chabad Rebbe's, and our Rebbe, his successor, was to become the seventh. So the theme that with which he 
left this world, uh, this physical plane, as it were, was a bridge and segue into what was coming next, which was the seventh generational leader of Chabad. And the Rebbe picked up on that theme and expounded on that in his inaugural address a year later, 1951, on the first anniversary of the passing of his predecessor and father-in-law, when he formally accepted the mantle of leadership of Chabad and effectively of world jury of world jury and he took the um, the words of his predecessor the previous rabbi the of the idea of the seventh generation bearing and carrying the responsibility to complete and to consummate what previous six generations have undertaken as the mandate, the calling, the marching orders for our um, generation. So the title of today, um, the Rebbe's Marching Orders, really began on that night in January of 1951. And what the Rebbe said was that just as Moses completed the reclamation of God's presence in this world by building the Mishkan, the sanctuary. This too is the calling and the mandate of our generation. That we too, the seventh generation, not by our own choice or volition, but fated providentially to be the seventh generation, our calling, our mission, our marching orders is to bring the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, to its fullest manifested permanent state here in this world. In other words, our generational marching orders is to cross the finish line of exile and into redemption. And that, and that would be a, a completion of a historical process that really started the onset of time. When God's stated purpose in creating the universe was to have a home, a space that he could call home, this place. And it's happened throughout history, but intermittently. That home has been the sanctuary in the desert, which we read of in the Torah now, then the temples in Jerusalem. <clears throat> but each one um, had its time only to be ultimately, eventually destroyed. The third temple is not only the third temple the third temple for which we await is the temple that will house God permanently effectuating a permanent state in the condition of the universe and that is the result of all of the infrastructure that we are creating right now we are currently creating um, that that we are investing now by virtue of what we do now in creating the infrastructure for the future, which is, the Rebbe told us, not the distant future, but a future that is upon us. And in terms of this evolutionary process of bringing the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, to a permanent state of residency, as opposed to a temporal state of residency, it means a global and level of 
engagement because we are talking about a permanent home for God that is recognized by the entire universe, that is recognized in so much as the temple being the epicenter, the house for God for all people of all faith, as the prophet says, for my house will be a house of prayer for all people, which means that the entire universe is part of the process of moving forward towards that day. And when we understand history through that lens and in that framework and in that context, then you look at things happening around you in a different way. Because what, you, what you're looking at is how things happening in the world today are part of a part of a narrative that is leading somewhere. Things don't happen um, randomly. Everything is part of a progression towards a, a destination. So, as somebody once put it very profoundly, the difference between the way we as Jews view history and the secular view of history is that in the secular model, to understand history, you always look towards the past to try and identify patterns and um, to try and connect the dots as it were. What do historians do? Historians look at an event and say, well, what are the underpinnings of this? What are the antecedents to this? What, where did this come from? Um, last summer, I, I uh, was invited to Yad Vashem in uh, Jerusalem for a week of training in Holocaust education in preparation of which we were supposed to read uh, a whole slew of books. Don't tell them that I didn't really read all of them. But uh, a lot of thick books, a lot of and each one a basically historical perspective of what are the underpinnings of Nazism and, and what was it rooted in and, and how did it all come to be? Clearly, something of this magnitude didn't just pop up. It wasn't a pop-up you know, movement. There were a lot of historical forces that contributed to it. And every historian has his, you know, take on it, as you will. And they're all they're probably all true. But Jewish history is actually more driven by the future than by the past. See, secular historians can only speculate as to what the future holds. As Jews, we don't need to speculate. We know what the future holds. We know what the future looks like. The future looks like a world that is at peace. The future looks like a world that God is finally able to call his permanent residence. So we know how it looks. We know that it means the rebuilding of the third temple. We know it means nations um, not at war with each other anymore. We know it means a world that is healed. So we know what the future looks like. And therefore, what, when we look at history, what we're looking at really is, okay, how is what is happening now part of the narrative that is moving us towards the finish line? How does it fit in? Sometimes uh, it's clearer, sometimes it's not. Um, when the Rebbe, when we had the privilege to hear from the Rebbe, um, particularly in um, the... Eight, late 80s and early 90s, the Rebbe saw tremendous global transformation um, taking place. 
in terms of the fall of communism and the beginning of the emancipation of Jewish communities all over the world. And never before had there been such a global upheaval that was bloodless. There was no, no wars up until this juncture in history. All great upheaval was always precipitated by warfare. Um, so a lot of, there started to be a lot of global change and, and, and uh, different alliances happening that the Rebbe said were part of the um, world's evolution and progression towards redemption. The fact that we have um, Israel today in our hands, the fact that Jewish people are, have and continue to emigrate uh, to Israel is also part of um, this process of redemption because all roads lead to the Holy Land. That's where the temple um, will be built. So um, it's, a, it's a lens <clears throat> that we can uh, utilize to have a different type of um, perspective. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, sometimes it feels like if we use the future redemption as a barometer, um, and the context with which to look at world events, sometimes it could get uh, admittedly a little confusing because sometimes it looks like we, uh, we're backtracking and we're not, we're not progressing. But the truth is that um, the prophets talk about the pre-Messianic era as being a time somewhat of, of confusion in the sense that we still have one foot in exile with one foot in redemption, so we're not quite fully planted in either place. So we shouldn't be shocked or surprised by the fact that um, things happen in the world that um, don't necessarily seem to be pointing towards spiritual uh, progression. It's all part of the, uh, the birth pings, if you will, of um, redemption. But what, what, is, what is common to all of the travail of the world today is that everything is out in the open. And that itself is something that's very messianic because the prophet talks about the pre-Messianic era as being a time of great exposure of, and, and clarity. Clarity in the sense that the lines are very clear and um, the, uh, the, the weaknesses or the setbacks that may be occurring in the world are no longer um, hidden from the public eye, but everything is exposed. So before before the advent of messianic redemption, the world is not going to be perfect. That happens after the fact. But what does happen is that nobody can get away with stuff anymore. And everything is put into the, um, into very frontally into the public sphere. That itself is a very positive thing because we are now dealing and confronting um, every issue um, rather than uh, keeping it under uh, the carpet as it were. So. That's a little bit of, um, so I guess, a, a preamble and perspective to um, this discourse in so much as what the discourse of 1950 of the previous Rebbe was in terms of how it encapsulated the marching orders and the transition from the sixth Rebbe's leadership to the seventh Rebbe's leadership to our Rebbe's leadership in which redemption became an actual agenda item as opposed to merely something that we believe in and that is an article of faith but an actual 
agenda item. In the same manner, this discourse, which was originally um, delivered verbally by the Rebbe, some discourses were written by the Rebbe's, as the previous Rebbe's one was. Some were <clears throat> delivered verbally at a public gathering, like a Fabrengen, and then transcribed, and then they were, um, and then they were many of them subsequently edited. So this initial this this discourse was initially. Um, delivered by the Rebbe in 1981, and then it was published and edited in 1992. And as Rabbi Shustman mentioned before, it was distributed, which means that the Rebbe stood for many hours um, and distributed this published uh, version of the discourse um, to thousands and thousands of people. Shortly thereafter, this was in, Feb in February of 1992. And it was a mere two weeks before the Rebbe suffered a, a debilitating stroke and um, from which he did not recover. And so Hasidim have always considered this then to be, um, provide us with the guidance, the insight and uh, the matching orders as it were to move forward. So from, um, from here on. Um, it's, it's, it's noteworthy and providential to point out the following, <clears throat> that this discourse is based on a verse in the Torah from the Torah portion of the Tzavah, which is typically read right around Purim, usually a week or two before Purim. So that's usually February, March. The Rebbe's uh, yard site, the anniversary of his passing, which is this week, the third of Tammuz, <clears throat> always coincides with the Torah portion of Korach. Korach was a nephew of Moses, and he staged a populist revolt, the premise of which was, there's no need for hierarchical leadership. We don't need leadership. Uh, as he put it, Everyone is holy. Everyone has their own direct access to God. We don't need spiritual leaders. We can all find our own path to connect to God. So it's striking <clears throat> that, that this episode in Jewish history always coincides with um, the anniversary of the Rebbe's passing because it's the story of how Jewish leadership is challenged, and how dramatically, how dramatically events unfolded, how emphatically God demonstrated um, the necessity for leadership, how the, the fate of Korach and his followers being uh, swallowed up by the earth, very dramatic um, uh, unfolding of events, as I'm sure you'll all read in this week's uh, Torah portion. Without getting into the details, the essence of the story is a, a populist revolt suggesting or rejecting the need for leadership and how emphatically God rejected that and how emphatically God said that leadership is absolutely vital and that what Moses is to the Jewish people will continue to be the necessary and vital role 
of all future generations, which is to say, as our sages tell us, every generation has its Moses. Every generation has its leader. And leadership is vital. <clears throat> A big chunk of this discourse is devoted to understanding the um, central and pivotal role that leadership plays. So uh, to say that it would be ambitious to cover this entire discourse in the course of the next half an hour would be an understatement. Now, uh, Rabbi Solish, are you able to um, put it up on the screen or do I need to do that? Or are you even still there? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm here. I'm here. I can definitely put it up. Um, yeah, so I can put it up and then you just let me know where, where, where we will follow to. All right. So we're going to, you know, we're going to get through, get through some, uh, highlights here. We're going to, as we, uh, take a tour through this, uh, through the discourse. Okay. So I'm going to start on page 26, which is the first page. <clears throat> All right. Should be up there. Right there on cue. What a techie. What a talented dude. Okay. So um, the verse starts quoting the, Torah, the, the opening verse of the Torah portion of the Tzavah. And you, Moses, shall command the children of Israel, and they shall bring to you pure olive oil, crushed for the luminary to raise up a constant flame. Okay, so I'm just going to paraphrase some of the questions here. <clears throat> this is talking about the mitzvah to light the menorah. Okay, we all familiar with that, right, from Hanukkah. Um, we do that on Hanukkah to commemorate the rededication of the temple and the lighting of the menorah as it took place in the temple. So here's the original instruction to light the menorah in the temple. And the way it's presented is, God says to Moses that you shall command the children of Israel, they should bring olive oil to you and um, it should be crushed to raise up a constant flame. So again, I'm going to just going to paraphrase some of the questions. The first question is that um, one of the most oft repeated verses in the Torah is, and God spoke to Moses saying, tell the people of Israel, so on and so forth, which conveys the fact that God is the commander and he's telling Moses, here's the command that I want you to convey to the people in my name, right? Moses is the messenger, right? He's not the commander. He's not the commander in chief. He's not the CEO. God's the CEO, right? He's the agent. By the way, I lost my uh, view on this, but that's okay. Um, on the screen here, but that's okay. So um, here, however, the way God phrases this to Moses, he says, you shall command, which makes it sound like he himself is the source of the mitzvah, right? So that's very unusual. That's an anomaly and begs for um, clarification. Why here is Moses made to sound like the one who's actually giving the command, whereas every, everywhere else in the Torah, the command is conveyed in the chain of command. God telling Moses to tell the people in his name. Question one. Question two, everybody knows 
that olive oil requires the crushing of an olive. And we also know that the Torah is very sparing uh, in its language and is never redundant or excessive. And so it would seem that um, saying that the oil has to be crushed is somewhat unnecessary and redundant, right? How else do you get oil if it's not crushed, right? The other, um, uh, the other observation that Rebbe makes here is that this verse says that the flame has to be constant, which is one of the reasons why in synagogues we have what's called the ner tamid, the eternal flame, right? A lot of people, a lot of shuls have in the front a hanging, uh, a hanging light that's also representative of this. But in the verse after, it says that the menorah should be lit from evening, was lit every evening till morning. So one verse says that, or it seems to imply that the menorah had to be lit constantly, the other evening to morning, which seems to be contradictory. The other is a uh, question here is uh, why screen you can if you want to put the other question is why the whole um, command is being uh, why the people are being told to bring the oil to Moses when it's actually Aaron who was the high priest he was the one who actually lit the menorah not Moses right so they should be bringing the oil to Aaron and not to Moses. So those are some of the questions. Now, if you can fast forward to page 30. <clears throat> there we are. So the Rebbe now, at this point, launches into a um, quotation, extensive quotation, of an earlier discourse delivered by his father-in-law, um, his predecessor, in 1927 in Moscow. This was turned out to be a very, very fateful um, discourse because it actually precipitated his arrest. He was arrested uh, later that year in May and sentenced to death. And uh, one of the main charges against him was the public gathering where he delivered this discourse, which was in Moscow, and uh, there were KGB agents everywhere. And the public gathering itself was technically in violation of many communist uh, rules. A, there was no, uh, no right to assembly, which we all take as a, as a given, right? The right to assemble. Uh, there's no right to assemble then at that time. Any assembly of more than three people you had to get a government permit for. Public teaching of Torah was also forbidden. They were also collecting money for charity, also forbidden because everything belonged to the state. But the previous Rebbe was, uh, was a, a undaunted lion who refused to succumb and to yield to the communists and their uh, design to destroy Jewish life in the former Soviet Union in, in, in Russia at the time. Anyway, so he delivered a discourse <clears throat> um, right around the same time of Purim and uh, based on one of the verses in the Megillah, it talks about how the Jewish people at the time of Purim 
fully um, received the Torah that had been given at Sinai over a thousand years prior, which, which we're going to circle back to. But the point that um, I want to focus on right now is one, two, three, four, four lines from the top of your page. The, uh, the line begins mand, as in command, and um, the answer to the first answer to the question um, that we just asked, why is it or how is it that Moses comes across here as being the commander to, to light the menorah when it's always God, God is the actual commander. So in that discourse of 1927, the previous Rebbe um, shares that the Hebrew word command, tetzaveh, connotes binding and uniting, which means to say, we, we, the question arises because we understand the word tetzaveh is meaning command. What do you mean Moses is the commander? He's not really the commander-in-chief, it's God. But the previous Rebbe tells us that the word tetzaveh actually connotes binding and uniting. And so, and you shall command the children of Israel means that Moses binds and unites the children of Israel with infinite light. Aha. So now we have, a, the Rebbe has com completely with one turn of a phrase reframed the whole understanding of the verse. What are we saying? That Moses is the binder. Moses is the connector. His role as a leader is to facilitate a deeper bond and connection between the people and God. Go please to the next page, 32. Moses quotes, uh, here he quotes uh, a verse from last week's Torah portion with the people complaining about lack of food or meat specifically. And in response to this, Moses refers to the Jewish people as feet. Now, if you look at the fourth line, it's quoting Moses, 600,000 feet is the nation that I am within. What is this reference to the people as feet? So Kabbalah talks about the totality of the Jewish people being encapsulated in a singular body. We are all, as it were, different parts, limbs, organs of a singular body. This is the idea of the Jewish people being a, a people that share a singular fate, just like your own body is a singular organism that has multiple um, that has multiple limbs and organs and so on and so forth, but they're all integrated uh, intrinsically. So, so too are the Jewish people intrinsically integrated. And what that means is that each one of us has a different function, much the same as different body limbs and organs have a different function, and each one completes the totality of the body. So what Moses is saying is that the people in general are the feet. What are the feet? Feet, what do the feet do? The feet are what enable mobility. The feet is what enables execution, action, 
The feet is how we move and shake and make things happen. So Moses is saying, by describing the Jewish people as feet, the people are the executors. In so much the people are the ones who fulfill God's plan by bringing, by, with the feet on the ground, by actually making things happen. Moses is in this, uh, in this profile, he's the head. He's the one who guides the, <clears throat> who guides the feet. The feet have the power to take us places, but where are we going? Where are you going? What direction? Where are you headed? What are you doing? For that, you need the head to give guidance, to give direction, uh, to tell the feet where to go. <clears throat> That's the role of a Jewish leader. The Jewish leader is to be the guide, is to be the one to give direction. And a, a Jewish leader is always a generational leader who has his finger on the pulse of the particular uh, direction that that generation needs to be guided in. Which overall, we all know what gener we all know that we are on the march towards redemption, and we know that we all have to fulfill the mitzvot and so on and so forth. But every generation presents its own particular challenges and needs its own particular um, leadership to be able to help us navigate our feet through the particular terrain of the time and place in which we live. So a Jewish leader is like a GPS. Let's say GPS stands for God's positioning system. He is able to help every person navigate their particular way through life and to make sure that they are moving in um, the right direction. So that's why God, uh, that's why Moses refers to the people as feet. He's not being, uh, he's not being denigrating. On the contrary, uh, he's talking about the people in the context like a foot soldier. It's like an army. The soldiers, the foot soldiers are the ones who go out to battle, but the generals are the ones who provide the strategy. Okay, so the soldier is going to go to battle. Where is he going? Where is the front line? What's the strategy? For that, you need leadership. For that, you need a visionary. That's the role of the leader. And that is why the Hebrew word Rebbe, which has, consists of three letters, Resh, Beis, Yud, uh, stands for Rosh B'nai Israel, the head of the Jewish people. This is one aspect of leadership in the sense that a leader is a guide. Now, um, if we go to the next page, I'm um, no, sorry, to page 36, <clears throat> the Rebbe expands the idea of, I'm sorry, uh, 34, 34. The Rebbe expands the idea of leadership further based on a description of Moses in the Zohar, which is the foundation of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, in which Moses as is described as the faithful shepherd. One of the connotations of um, 34, if you don't mind, Rabbi Ari, <clears throat> one of the connotations of faithful shepherd. So there are two connotations. One is that 
He's reliable. You can rely on it. He's faithful. He's loyal. He's loyal to the people, right? He doesn't abandon the people. Um, he's loving and he's loyal. We know the famous story of how for 40 years <clears throat> after Moses bolted from Egypt until he was called upon God to come back and liberate the people, he spent 40 years, much of that time as a shepherd, as a king, part of it. And he demonstrated his absolute loyalty and faithfulness to his flock when one of the one of the sheep of his flock strayed and Moses ran after this one singular stray sheep of the mountains and hills and valleys to bring it back to the flock. So he demonstrated his loyalty and his faithfulness as a leader. And God saw that quality in him as being a, a, something that would make him qualified to be a leader of people, not only a, uh, a shepherd of sheep. But there's a deeper connotation to shepherd of faith. And that is, shepherd of faith means a, someone who shepherds faith, which means someone who helps to nurture and to um, internalize faith. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit right now. The Hebrew word nurturing also implies to feed and to sustain. So let's uh, unpack this a little bit right now. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase whatever it talks about here. That is, you have to understand a little bit about the nature of faith. By virtue of being the, the, the spiritual and biological descendants of the patriarchs, first and foremost, Abraham, Abraham bequeathed certain spiritual DNA to all of his progeny, to all of the Jewish people. One of them is faith, which means that faith is wired into the soul of a Jew. Thus, faith is not something that ever needs to be discovered. I'm sorry, it's never something that needs to be acquired, only discovered. Faith is something that we simply need to uncover from within, not try to import from without. <clears throat> Why then do we sometimes struggle with faith? How is it possible for a Jew then to be a self-described uh, agnostic or even an atheist? Not, it is not because one is, not, one is lacking the component, the faith uh, uh, element of the DNA. It's just that it's so deeply embedded that it needs someone, an agent, to help to extract it, unearth it, facilitate it. But let's not, we don't have to dwell so much on um, the, uh, uh, the extreme example of denial of faith. Even those who are in possession of faith, there is um, an inherent um, paradox, if you will, <clears throat> what would seem to be a paradox or anomaly when it comes to faith. And that is, as the Talmud says, the nature of faith is such that a thief can be on the precipice of about, uh, of, of about of, to commit a crime 
as in to steal, and stops for a moment and prays to God for success, that he shouldn't get caught and that he should uh, walk away with a very uh, abundant uh, loot. So the, the, the question, of course, is um, clearly this person has no faith in God, but everybody knows you shall not steal. That's not like, you know, one of these abstract mitzvot, one of the 613 that nobody knows about, right? That's one of the big 10. Everybody knows you shall not steal. <clears throat> so how could you, how could you steal and profess to have faith in God? So what do you mean you're praying to God for success in violating his own very decree, his very own mitzvah? And yet the Talmud cites this, not to say, yeah, this guy's a joke. He has no faith in stealing. No, it's actually to demonstrate the very nature of faith, which is that <clears throat> faith is such that it, it, it does not perforce inform or impact behavior. Faith and behavior are two different things, which means that you can believe in something and you can have faith in it very strongly, you can believe very strongly. And yet it remains on a parallel track to behavior, doesn't impact behavior whatsoever. So for example, you can believe very strongly that there is extraterrestrial life with every fiber of your being that there are Martians or on other planets, which is fine. Does that in any way inform any choice, any choices that I make in the way I live my life? Not at all. It doesn't impact whatsoever. Not something I believe in very strongly. Okay, say, so, well, believing in extraterrestrial life is, is altogether not that relevant. But the principle that you can believe in something without having personal relevance is true even of belief in God. You can believe in God and genuinely believe in God. And yet, that belief does not perforce organically translate into behavioral modification. Just because I believe in God doesn't mean that I'm going to live my life in accordance with God's will. That is something that needs to be nurtured. That is something that needs to be developed. That is something that needs to be worked. We've got to work it. We have to work the faith. It's like seeds that are planted deep and deeply embedded uh, in, the, in the earth. It needs to be watered. It needs to be nurtured so that it can grow and flourish. The seeds are there, but it's embedded very deeply within the subconscious layer of soul. So one of the roles of a leader is to inspire people to the point that their faith is activated, bringing the faith to the fore. How does a leader do that? He does it first and foremost by the strength of his own example, by his example of someone whose faith is very much uh, integrated into his behavior, that inspires others to follow suit. Case in point that Abba mentions here is Mordechai. Mordechai 
we are told, he, we all know that he was the leader of the Jewish people during the Purim story. And our sages tell us that what Moses was to his generation, Mordechai was to his generation. What was Mordechai? Mordechai was an unyielding believer. As everybody knows, it says in the Megillah, the Mordechai was the bane of Haman's existence. Why? Because everybody else bowed down to Haman, except for Mordechai. He remained absolutely um, true to his principles behaviorally. Others maintained their belief in God, but outwardly um, demonstrated their uh, yielding to the power of Haman. Mordechai refused to do that. He's an example of someone who not only um, was in possession of faith at a subconscious level, but his behavior manifested that and expressed that in a very powerful and visceral way. So he was an example to the people of unyielding faith. And therefore, uh, he rallied the people. And he proactively created a renaissance of faith among the Jewish people, which was ultimately the, uh, the downfall of, uh, of Haman. So the role then of a Jewish leader is to be the agent to help nurture, facilitate, integrate, and personalize faith. And um, so again, it's not a matter of acquiring faith from some external source, but rather to be the agent to help, uh, to help individuals discover it within. So it's a very organic um, process that um, comes from within. But we need the inspiration and we need the guidance of the leader to help us discover that within our own selves. Like a good coach, uh, the great coaches <clears throat> motivate um, athletes to discover their own greatness. Because uh, at the end of the day, you can't make someone greater than they are. But what you can do is you can extract from within someone a greater greatness than they would have known otherwise. That's what a great coach does. He's a motivator and he helps people discover their own inner greatness. That's the role of a leader. And so a, a, a Mordechai and a Moses and a Rebbe is someone who is an agent, is a, is a faith coach, and helps nurture it so that our faith is something that powerfully um, informs us and, and drives us and sustains us. Now, this is particularly necessary in times of adversity, when things are tough and the mind can't wrap itself around, why is this happening to me? And we get weak and our resolve is weak and we start to capitulate to circumstances and we think this is too difficult for me to get through. This is where faith kicks in because faith is not calculated like the mind. The MO of the mind is, if this is going to work for me, it has to make sense for me. Faith doesn't need sense to operate because faith is anchored and rooted in a deeper connection to God, which is an unquestioning because it knows that everything is being orchestrated by God. And I know that understanding that everything that God does is beyond my pay grade. 
because I am a creation and God is a creator. I am finite. He's infinite. And it's an exercise in futility for the finite to be able to grasp and fathom the infinite. So, so how do I cope then with something that the mind struggles or, if, or I cannot fathom? This is where faith kicks in. And faith is not a, a sign of weakness. Okay, so now I'm going to go to a weaker part of myself to, as a coping mechanism, as some described it as the opiate of the masses. No, faith is more powerful than the mind. And that is why faith is able to push us and sustain us when the mind fails us. And such was the case during the Purim story, which is a very <clears throat> um, difficult period where the Jewish people were looking at um, a, a decree of, of, of wholesale genocide of the Jewish people. There was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to turn. And Mordechai um, became the architect of a renaissance of faith and through that the downfall of Haman. So this whole <clears throat> conversation, discussion about Mordechai's role in the Purim story is the theme of the previous Rebbe spoke about in 1927 in Moscow because the circumstances were um, very similar. Um, the Jewish people were living in, under a very, very difficult, dark circumstance and they were in desperate need of strong, unyielding leadership an unshakable and an unbreakable faith uh, in God and in our fidelity to God and Torah and mitzvot. And that was the previous Rebbe. He was that line. He was the line of faith that guided his Hasidim, not only to remain faithful, but he also sent them throughout the former Soviet Union to open a whole clandestine and underground network of yeshivas and schools and mikvahs to keep Jewish life alive uh, under that very, very dark and difficult um, time. So in conclusion, we fast forward now <clears throat> to um, the uh, marching orders, as it were, of, of our time. And uh, what the Rebbe um, goes on to develop is this, that um, one level of faith is, is it, which emanates from a deeper level of soul is uh, what kicks in in a time of, of uh, adversity. It's almost like uh, <clears throat> it's the, uh, you know, here in uh, Florida we have uh, hurricane season, right? So a lot of people now have generators. So when the, um, when the electricity goes out, so there's a switch and the, the generator kicks in. So in a time of adversity, um, that's when like the faith switch goes on. And, uh, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And we got the coach, we've got the leader who is um, empowering that, that faith. He's like, he's the one who helps activate the faith switch and he keeps supplying the fuel to the generator that uh, it shouldn't uh, sputter or, uh, or go out. <clears throat> Well, here we are, um, says the Rebbe. Um, thank God we are living in a time when um, there are no Jewish communities that are really living um, under the nose of a uh, totalitarian regime. Um, yes, there are actually still Jews. There is a still a, quite a vibrant Jewish community in Iran. 
Uh, most people don't know that. Um, for the most part, they're actually free to, uh, to live or to practice Judaism. <clears throat> but never before in, in, in Jewish history, since the time of the temple, have Jews, by and large, been so free. Um, we have always have to, had to have um, dealt with some degree of, of adversity to some degree. Um, for the most part today, we are living in an unprecedented time of um, prosperity and freedom. So here the Rebbe says, this is actually, now is the ultimate um, test and testament to faith. Because it's one thing for the faith switch to kick on when you are dealing with a very adverse circumstance, because that's how else you're going to cope. If you don't activate that deeper level of faith in the soul, you're going to capitulate. You'll be swept, swept over by this force, whether it's communism or um, whatever the force at the time might be. Now we don't have any external um, activators of adversity, which means to say that today for us to discover faith, it really, it really comes from within, not because we are reacting to an adverse circumstance. So today is the ultimate testament of faith. And here's what the Rebbe says is the challenge of our time. The challenge of our time is largely <clears throat> not coping with adversity, but coping with prosperity. And the challenge is not to succumb to a mindset in which we get comfortable with life as it is to the extent to the extent that we can no longer envision or anticipate or feel the inherent deficiency in the world by virtue of the fact that God still doesn't have his house built. The temple is still not built in Jerusalem which means that God still does not have his house in this world, which means that the world is still not the place that it can be. So the challenge is, do we succumb to a mindset of complacency in which, well, this is, you know, this is about pretty much spiritually as, as, as good as it gets and be content with the fact that we can practice Judaism in freedom? Or are we able to be sensitive to the fact that the divine presence still doesn't have a place to call home? And that that should actually gnaw at us, K-N-A-W, to the point where we feel, a, um, we feel an inherent hole within by virtue of the fact that God still doesn't have, is still displaced. In the, in, the, in, the, in the language of the discourse, and this goes back to the opening verse, there's two types of, and this is, oil is a metaphor for faith because oil, as we know, well, all cream is oil-based, or most creams are oil-based because oil has a very deep penetrating capacity. So, Oil is a metaphor for faith because when faith is activated, um, it, it penetrates and, uh, and permeates in a very deep way.
which means that we are very driven um, by that faith. So here is where the idea of crushing, of the crushed olive comes in. For the greatest part of Jewish history, faith kicked in because the olive was being crushed, because we were being crushed by external circumstances. And so, you know, the faith kicked in, like the switch went on and we had Jewish leaders to help to um, develop that and, uh, uh, and nurture that. Now, says the Rebbe, we don't have any external elements that are crushing per se. So the sense of crushedness, which means this, the inherent and internal sense that we are not yet where we are supposed to be has to come from within. And that is the ultimate testament um, of faith, to realize that we are all part of this process, to bring the world to its complete state of redemption, to bring the Shekhinah, the divine presence, and to ultimately effectuate transformation, and that each and every one of us is not exempt from being a part of that process. That is the challenge of our time. The marching orders of our time, therefore, is to discover that faith within ourselves, to align ourselves with that, to see all of us as God's ambassadors in this process and to realize that it's within the hands and the capacity of each and every one of us to activate that process, to accelerate that process and to cross the finish line to bring global redemption for us and for the entire 